Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel. Today we are speaking with Sachin Kundu. Sachin is a senior software engineer at Microsoft and he was one of my colleagues when I worked at Microsoft. We went down the rabbit hole on programming languages, on software engineering, on machine learning, reinforcement learning, and also what makes an excellent software engineer and what makes an excellent tech lead. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy the episode today. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe, and we'll see you back next week. Um, I'm just uh, on the bridge of the, the Star Trek Enterprise at the moment. Oh, Enterprise. Yeah. So, I'm floating. I'm floating in a higher plane above the above <laughs> the galactic core. Right. Well, at least somebody needs to be on Earth, so I'm holding the fort while you guys are there. So, who's right. your favorite Star Trek captain? You're going to hate me for saying this, but it's Janeway. Yeah. Oh, I knew that you and I would match. Mine is January too. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Mine is yeah, Picard. You are you are in the standard domain because few people choose Janeway, but I, I think she, for me she has been the best captain. Her choices are always. I see herself as a captain. That's why. I did Voyager was probably one of my favorite series. I, I don't know. It's, I've never really thought about ranking them precisely, but it's awesome. It had so many of some of the coolest episodes like exactly. that one where the, uh, the dinosaurs the earth and then became this advanced sort of nomadic space right. civilization right. and they just beam the entire ship into their like cargo bay <laughs> that was yeah, far that, out. that was amazing they have really different concepts and i really like that series and as a person i think jane Wave was as i said like a captain i could serve under her i've always felt like that you know, she was so real and her decisions were Sometimes you had to take hard decisions, and it was very nice. Like, really good captain, I feel. Yeah, yeah, I don't disagree. I, I just think Picard was uh, pretty cool. I liked his sort exactly. of, es I liked his eccentricities. T, Earl Grey, hot. He's <laughs> pissed off if the temperature is like one degree C where, from where it's supposed to be, and uh, sometimes just goes off with some Shakespeare or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, Picard is cool. That's the first word which comes to my head. If I have to think of Picard, it would be like, he's cool. There was also a scene where some bad guys beamed onto the bridge, and I remember Picard like runs at one of them and throws this sort of elbow to his head, and I thought, <laughs> and he does it just instantaneously. Like the guys show up, and he's just boom jumps in to try and knock him out. I thought, nice, <laughs> get his hands dirty. Is the What's man up, brother? Hello. Hello. What do you think of my new appearance? I I can't see you. Oh, uh -huh. I think uh, because of the sunglasses. Maybe my. <laughs> oh, now. Oh, nice. What's up, man? We're, we're <laughs> brothers now. Peas in a pod. Blues yeah. brothers. <laughs> Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel. With me, Tim Scarf, my two compadres, MIT Dr. Keith Duggar, Yannick Lightspeed Kilcher, and today our very special guest. Sachin Kundu. Now, I worked a lot with Sachin at Microsoft. He's living in Finland at the moment. He's a senior software engineer. He's been there for about the last four years or so. Sachin's done so much stuff. He, he set up a, a distributed systems meetup in Helsinki. I, I think he's just set up a meeting uh, now around robotics. His interests are reinforcement learning and robotics and machine learning, software engineering, distributed systems, large-scale data uh, engineering. And so when I interviewed to be a software engineer at Microsoft, Sachin was was on my interview panel and he was a complete he was a complete bastard. He asked me, he said, Tim, 
name five research papers that you've recently read and tell me about them in detail. And he completely put me on the spot. I was absolutely scared out of my wits. But the really cool thing about Sachin is that he's one of these guys that always wants to be the best version of himself. He's always studying. He's always learning new things. And like just his energy is really inspirational uh, for me, which is why I thought I'd, I'd invite him on the show. So Sachin, welcome. And, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tim. I'm always surprised when you say about the interview. It was supposed to be pleasurable. And I hope you felt like that because, as you might know, in Microsoft, whenever we take an interview, the interviewee should always leave. Oh, it was fun. It might be difficult, but it should still be fun. And I hope it was like that for you. And if it was not, my sincere apologies. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, it was, was fun. He was, he was just curious, <laughs> like, hey, what have you been reading? And uh, tell, exactly. tell me about it. He just wanted to see what I have to say. So, so you did set up this meetup. And when I went and checked out your LinkedIn, it's the first LinkedIn I've ever seen where somebody has the phrase flame war. And I thought, this is awesome. Like he's saying, I set up this meetup so people won't flame war, but rather actually, you know, I, now, now I'm get, inspired. People get caught up in like very minute things instead of discussing more serious topics. Like, so that's right. right. Yeah. yeah, people get very religious about certain technologies or technology stacks or programming languages or, or whatnot. Right. There can be a lot of religion associated with it identity yeah for having fun in an interview when i'm be like i have almost made up my mind i always what's your favorite programming language just to you know heat things up like oh everybody has that oh this programming language i like this one and then you can go into a uh, discussion i never do that when i start the interview but always at the end when i have like everything is gone through just to have fun with the candidate it's always uh, what's your favorite programming language <laughs> so what was tim's answer what was your answer tim that's a good question. The thing was, for some reason, I was completely blindsided by the question and my mind went blank. And all I could do was um, go back to the kind of stuff I was researching on my PhD. And that was all about there was a guy called Jonathan Foote who was doing analysis of music using self-similarity matrices. And he had this concept of a kind of um, a kernel function, which when you created this sliding self-similarity function, it, it had this kind of exponentially weighted Gaussian, which would prioritize things that were in the recent past versus the long distance relationships. And that, that was the thing that came to my mind at the time. But I'd, I felt quite um, annoyed with myself afterwards because there were many other things that I could have said. Why don't we do a round robin of everybody's favorite programming languages? <laughs> so let's start off with the heat instead of uh, waiting until the end of the call. So Sachin, guest, uh, favorite programming language? For a long time, it was uh, C-Lisp or Common Lisp, but I then realized that uh, not many people are using it, and especially in the industry, like I find very few people who would go with Common Lisp. I find it's very intuitive and easy to write, but lately I started to write Haskell more. Haskell, right now it would be Haskell. I think it's quite a nice language and it forces you to think in the terms like types very strongly. Combine that with the functional look it has uh, completely or purely functional. I think it's opening my eyes to write better programs. So that's why these days I write Haskell quite a lot. Interesting. Yannick? I'm inclined to say Python, but actually I think it's JavaScript. And I'm serious. <laughs> it's become, it used to be this nuisance, but it's become I think a beautiful language in the last uh, five years or so with ES6 and mm. uh, I, I just love the fact that it's in browsers, it's, you know, you can write servers with it, with Node, you can write scripts with it and so on. It's, I generally tend to use also in frameworks, just whatever fits best. 
at the moment. But overall, yeah, Python and JavaScript are, I feel, I'm, I'm not a big type fan. Like, and this is especially in deep learning, people are like, wow, I need a typed language, whatever. And then you <laughs> deep learning stuff, and it's, what's the type of this tensor? Oh, gee, thank you. <laughs> I feel this, this focus on types, it only makes sense in very specific, narrow contexts where a type is really informative. But I find often types and class names and so on are are, are very non-informative and, and just having a data type very often does not encapsulate really the enough information because what you want to say is, for example, this is a tensor that has X many RGB images, which are the output of this layer and so on. But none of this is encapsulated in the type tensor. Could, and, could I... Anders Helsberg uh, was a big inspiration for me and of course he went on to, to create TypeScript but I, I cut my teeth in the world of C Sharp and I could see firsthand the benefits of having a statically typed language just in terms of tooling and compile time error checking and testing and so on and this is a language where you can a priori explicitly define the kind of objects that you're working with. It doesn't surprise me at all that a deep learning practitioner who's working on esoteric geometric and manifold spaces wouldn't uh, want to exactly quantify the type of types that they're working on. Yeah, and, and let me say this. If types are like violence, if they don't solve your problem, it's because you're not using enough of it. <laughs> so I think uh, <laughs> like this complaint you had about types, what I would say is you should look into some of the tuple type sort of structures and literatures because, for example, if I have a tensor and whatever, let's say it, however many dimensions it has, it doesn't matter. If I can just describe that as look, this is a, a tuple type where it has you know, these types for each of the columns or that sort of thing, then it becomes a, a genericized type system, if you will. And also, there's been a lot of effort put into kind of automatic typing, so you have to do a lot less uh, kind of work to get the type system to do what you want. So this is why, this is one of the reasons actually why C++ is my my favorite language, because it's, it's a super pragmatic language. It's multi-paradigm. You can do object-oriented program if you want. You can do even functional program to a large degree if you want to, and you can do meta-programming. And it, all, although I'll admit like it was a pretty ugly syntactic, some choices that were made there, nevertheless, you can do it. And it's always had this great emphasis on, on typing, on don't pay for features that you don't use, on just a very pragmatic kind of approach to, to programming. You should, you should embrace types, Yannick, like that. I'm not because, so, okay, so now you, you have, I don't know, you have the covariance operator in SciPy and that by definition gives you a symmetric positive, like a positive semi-definite matrix as an output. Like this is just something that no type system in the world, I guess you could make like in Java, you can make an interface and slap that on and so on. But it's still, the fact is we all just have to know in our head that what comes in here is positive semi-definite and therefore we can do things with it. And it's these types of things that I think types don't encapsulate. Could we link this to the symbolic thing? So we're doing kind of continuous geometric programming, which seems to be almost antithetical to symbolic reasoning, which we have types for. But before we get to that, let me just address something you just said there. So actually, Type systems, 
Alexander, was it Alexander? Yeah, Alexander Stepanov, who was the person who created the first template library in, in C++ and was really one of the driving minds behind the idea of templates and uh, type, type parameterization and whatnot. Believe it or not, what you just mentioned was exactly his goal in, cre in creating these systems, was the ability, for example, to say that this algorithm within the type system is quadratic time complexity, logarithmic space complexity, et cetera, so that you would have the, these traits, these type traits that you could build into the type system so that the type system itself could do a bunch of advanced kind of reasoning and make selections automatically as to the best algorithms. So like, for example, positive semi-definite would be a, a type trait that should be associated with that type. And then it actually allows a lot of powerful automatic kind of re uh, reasoning. I don't need to say reasoning, like evaluation, whatever you want to call it. Reasoning's a hot word on this podcast here. But the point was to to provide this nuance so that you could have a very powerful type system. We're not quite there yet. It's under development. Uh, a lot of times the syntax is quite ugly and whatnot. But in concept, I'm going to come back to what I said earlier. If types aren't solving your problem, it's because we're not doing enough of it. But anyway. I think in Haskell, there is one special thing about the types, and especially when I was saying I like this thing about types, is that you can think of all types. Generally, in every language, we have an and type. That is, you add to a data type to extend it, so you are anding them. But in Haskell, uh, you can or a type, like uh, something can be this or this, and that leads to quite intuitive programs. That's what I was saying. It's opening my mind how to write better software, which is guaranteed to be correct because it's like provably correct. That's another thing I like about the types, that it's provably correct. Once it's compiled, you are quite certain about uh, the mathematical provability of your components. And you can or them, not just and them. And that's a, that I find that in very few languages, that ability is there, which is quite special. So that's why I suggest like try types, not just for the sake of data types, like this is an int and you're passing an int, which is a good one but also thinking in types, which is what Haskell asks you to do, think in types and in immutable data structures. I think that's quite intuitive. Like, I, I like it. Do, do you think there's a trade-off between the kind of expressiveness of a language and its usefulness? I mean, I, I know some folks at Microsoft have said this. What I love about some of the modern languages is there's been so much cross-pollination. Right, because I started with JavaScript as well, when just like Yannick, I, I was over the moon when some of the ES6 features came in, like things like lambdas and object destructuring. I discovered functional programming through C Sharp when they um, introduced integrated language query, and I think I was on the I was on the beta in April of 2005 on that, and it just blew my mind. And I was always the annoying developer who checked uh, all of my code was written using link queries, much to the uh, chagrin of, of other people on my team, but it's quite difficult to use these traditional functional programming languages in production. I think it's difficult because we are like most of the universities, like people just do some scheme to do some artificial, basic artificial intelligence course and then never touch a functional programming language again. So I feel like the easiness or difficult is just because people just don't have enough uh, experience or they just don't spend enough time with functional languages. Haskell in particular is known to be more difficult because it's quite pure, but there are easier languages. And why did I like, like I started by saying, oh, I liked common Lisp and I'm saying Lisp is from like 1960s and almost every language is asymptotically trying to become Lisp. 
Like it's eventually going to become or more look more <laughs> like this. A lambda or functional closures or something which we can consider quite good in new languages has been known since 1960 when the lambda calculus and we wrote like things around it and you can actually prove everything that is correct. We are, every language is trying to eventually become this, but at least that's how I think. Wasn't that like, like Paul Graham or somebody has Graham's law or whatever, which says any sufficiently complex software system implements a half-baked, poorly thought out a common <laughs> list machine exactly. or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There, I know that, uh, and I, I haven't looked at functional languages in many years, but for a while I was interested in them. And, and I know online, a lot of the flame wars, if you will, around this centered on so the sort of more pure functional languages that just flat out deny the existence of time. There's no mutability. There's no change. It's just everything has to be this grand uh, functional definition of, of the world or whatever. And, and what happens in a lot of languages, and I'm going to actually include Lisp in this one, is when you try to maintain this sort of linguistic purity that doesn't quite fit with the actual world there's these friction points and these impedances. And as much as people try to push back and say, look, like, why can't we just add some really simple way to do this, make some little crack in the armor here? If you try to keep that iron grip on it, it's like in, in Star Wars when Princess Leia tells, you know, Admiral uh, Grand Moff, whoever, or maybe it was, I forget who she told, the more you tighten your grip, the more systems slip through your fingers. And that's what happens to these languages. Whereas that's why I like the languages that have evolved pragmatically, like C, where if you've ever watched any kind of uh, TED Talks or discussions with Strustrup, the kind of designer of C, he's just this, he's this awesome uh, consensus builder. Like he's not offensive at all. Like he's just out there really trying to help people achieve more kind of a Microsoft language and find a system that works that can move everybody forward. And sure, you end up with a little cruft here and there, but that's better than the kind of linguistic purity of some of these that's other um, communities. What was the drama with Python recently? The, the original creator of Python has finally left the community, but only after many years of pushing wow. this one feature which he really wanted to get in. He finally got his way, but it broke him. Was it the walrus? Yes. I think there was like a big discussion about the So for, for people who don't know, the walrus hopper, it's like this period followed by an equal sign. It looks like a walrus with walrus, whatever, teeth, horn. <laughs> what, what is it called? Walrus? Tusks. Uh, Tusks, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Okay. And what what you can do is you can assign a variable as an expression and the return type of the expression will be the result, like the variable itself that you assign. So you can evaluate some function, save that into a variable, check that value of that variable at the same time as you assign the variable. So it used to be that an assignment in Python, I, I'm not even, okay, I'm not even sure about this, but an assignment itself had a value of I'm not sure. It depended on something. But here you can do where previously you'd have to do something like next line in file equals read from the file pointer. And then you check whether or not the next line is zero or an empty buffer. And then you continue. You can do this in one. And the, the, it's, it's a neat feature. But I think the, the worry was that people are going to horribly abuse this because you can write some very extremely illegible code 
like that looks nothing like Python by just abusing two or three of these walruses uh, in conjunction with each other. Yeah, so I think there was a big fight between the this is really useful crowd and the this goes against this mantra of Python that is like better explicit than implicit, better purity, purity. Simplicity than complexness. I, I used to play squash, and it would really annoy me when I would typically when I was playing older guys that weren't trained, they weren't coached. They would play the game in a way that I hated. I I loved to play it down the wall, and it was a beautiful game, and and it was just wonderfully structured. And that's the same thing with programming languages. When you start thinking about software engineering, what we want to have is standardization. We want people to be writing things in the same way and we want to be testing in the same way. And that means that we're going to have to force people to not use the language in all of its expressive form. Even regular expressions, they're incredibly expressive, but they're very difficult for people to read. And maintainability is super important. So how do you square that circle? In my opinion, and I'm pretty sure this is Strauss actually coming back to him, is he made the point that when we design systems, what we should really focus on is making the right thing easy to do rather than focusing on making the wrong thing hard to do so in these systems like with the walrus operators yeah but somebody might go out there and do something really nasty and then our purity will be lost that's the wrong focus like the focus should be well if they're trying to do something legitimate and they're doing it in a really nasty way why don't we provide some very easy well-designed way for people to achieve that instead. So less about trying to make everybody do what you want and instead making it easy and well-defined for people to do what they want. I want to interject, I might be completely wrong in the, the, the fact that the discussion was about this, but that's just what I have, what I've gathered. So just yeah, and I, I might FYI. be completely wrong. In <laughs> C++, you can just say auto X equals expression. Boom, case closed. <laughs> value and type inferred for you so so Sachin clearly you, you are huge into software engineering this is your bread and butter clearly there is a, a dichotomy between your academic and theoretical interest in languages and of course that feeds in or it informs the way that you write software um, at, at work but clearly there has to be a separation between the two so how does software engineering ruin your theoretical interest in programming languages? No, it, it shouldn't. I'll come back to what I was saying before. It's that other software engineers or the software engineering as a group has been taught to use procedural and object-oriented languages more. And there is a there is an upward spiral on it. Once you do it, there, there are more programs on it, so you use it. It's just that most people do not have enough exposure or experience in functional programming languages. And if they were, then we could have used Haskell and it would not be like you'll have to think differently or it is not as effective or productive. I don't think so. It's just that it takes a long time to become productive and there is just not enough material to become productive or opportunities to become productive. But, but on, on that, because you're, you're making the argument that it's essentially socially constructed to some extent. But surely there's also another counter argument, which is there's something about these functional languages because you did, you hinted that there's a bit of a longer learning curve. It's, hard, it, it, it's harder to be productive with them. And also it's much harder to understand because these languages are much more compact 
and it is harder to understand. So it, does that trade off against the maintainability no, it, of the code? No, it's not. It's like this. It's like you have a Fiat Punto. Imagine it's easy to drive. You can sit in it and start driving instantly and it works most of the time. It can go from one place to the other, but it's difficult to drive a Ferrari. You need a little bit more time to understand how to drive it, but it does go at 300. It's just that th there is a difference between instant productivity because it's easier, yes. Uh, functional language is a little bit more hard to understand. It's, but it's also to do with that we just don't get enough exposure to do it. But just, yeah, sorry, just on that quickly, though, because I think some people would, I personally agree with your Ferrari analogy, but I think a lot of people would resent that analogy. And they would say that you could do exactly the same things with traditional languages. They're just not as expressive. Uh, yeah, it's like stretching the analogy very far. It's uh, with a traditional language. I find it more difficult to say it's provably correct, which I like about Haskell in particular or purely functional languages, like once you write it and it compiles, the way the type system is written, you can be quite certain that it's referentially transparent. You have made the types in such a way that they make sense. And once it compiles, it works. This I find quite special. No, you can still do the same stuff in probably Visual Basic if you're a very careful programmer. It's just easier to do, I think, to make complex systems work in functional languages once you get used to them. The getting used to them, it's a little bit more work. But just quickly on that, I think that you can express quite dynamic systems in a very small amount of code using functional programming. But some software systems are huge. And we had this whole object-oriented programming revolution, which has informed much of the paradigm of software engineering today. So again, do you think that those paradigms are incompatible with each other? And do you, are you a believer in object-oriented programming? I think object-oriented programming does have its usage. Uh, I, I feel like all the system, if personally given to me a choice, I would write all central core, which has nothing to do with IO or not changing the state in the world as much as with a functional language. I just find it quite easy to say, okay, it works, but object-oriented programming paradigm is not uh, it's not bad. You can design very good business systems with it. Again, going back to these things I was saying, it's just that in object-oriented languages, types can be extended only with AND, which does lead to some design hierarchies which are not very compatible. And then you have to make all of these changes in your hierarchical structure just to fit what the language expects, because there is no way to say it can be this or that. So you'll have to extract something out in the base and that the base probably is very general. It just needs so, to. Yeah, I don't think that's actually true, Sachin. I think like at least in the C plus land, we have lots of metaprogramming capabilities to express union types, intersection types, et cetera. So I think it's that may be a language restriction. To me, the, one of the fundamental differences between functional programming and other forms of programming has always been immutability. Has that changed? Is immutability still a, a core defining feature of functional programming languages? I would say so. I would say so. Okay. And, and and I would say that specifically talking about Haskell, which is not necessarily loaded about functional. I'm also saying that Haskell has a special type system. There are many languages, functional languages, which don't have that kind of a type system. So functional languages in itself, I think, yes, it's because of the immutability, which lets you write referentially transparent code. 
uh, it makes a lot of sense to have this provable characteristics. But Haskell in particular, since it, uh, I've not written that much, especially not in the meta way, if it does yeah. support that kind of types, I think you can similarly do the same thing. Okay, so if we get to this, if we agree that immutability is kind of one of the core differences, if you will, the kind of mental impedance that so many people have with with functional programming languages is that the world is mutable. At least everything in our experience tells us that what we see around us is is mutable. Now, maybe you're, you're like a B theory of time person and you think that the passage of time is an illusion and, and all past and future here. And, and But so functional programming forces you to think in these weird versions of time. It's almost like everything around us tells us there's one universe. But instead, if we start to believe in like the multiverse type theory, and I'm like the literal, not just regions of a larger space, but I mean like a multiverse in the, in the sense of many parallel branching time, whatnot, you just twist yourself a notch trying to avoid the very simple perception that you have of reality. And I think that's a, the, the disconnect between functional programming and a lot of the problems that people, everyday people are just trying to solve with software. Now, I think in a functional programming language, you always said that you always write the central core and then you always have to write some IO monad so you can actually change the state. It's just that if you separate the IO in a separate layer, you can very strongly reason about your core, which is where your business logic lives, and then you can let the state change through a very specific a layer and it reduces the mistakes you could make. Having said that, I think you can very write very good systems with any programming language. It's just a person to person, maybe it makes them think more productively. And I do feel that every programmer should understand one object oriented and one functional language quite well, because it mm -hmm. makes you realize how to write be uh, better programs in both. Without yeah. going into flame wars, if you choose that object oriented is the only way or functional is the only way, you're still leaving something on the table to become a better software engineer, a better programmer, because yeah, you can learn things from one to the other and get the ideas. So that I'm going to totally agree with, which is why I'm such a big fan of multi-paradigm languages, because I like it when a language allows me to think in many different ways. Clearly, like for example, just putting constraints in a database, which is a functional definition, right? That there's this foreign key relationship between these two tables or whatever, extremely powerful concepts. And so multi-paradigm for me is where it's at. And in this analogy, C++ is like a, a used car dealership where you can like show up and, and just buy or rent or lease like whatever vehicle appropriate for the, the trip that you're about to take. And, and sometimes what you want isn't actually on the lot, but out back there's this old car factory and you can go back there and get a customized vehicle built for you <laughs> like in a few weeks. Could I just gently chat? I mean, I know I'm laboring the point a little bit here, but I, I agree that having multiple paradigms is a good thing. And certainly it means that if you're searching through the space of problems and you want to find an effective solution quickly, it helps you. But again, from a software engineering point of view, technical debt and maintainability and having a homogenous technical set of solutions is actually better in many ways. So you said as well, by the way, that learning functional programming languages might help you in something like Python. Python is a multi-paradigm language, so I suppose it would be quite easy to, to use those functional paradigms in Python. But even in Python, I used to use a library called Pipe by Julian Pallard, and that allowed you to write Python a little bit like you would C-sharp 
uh, link queries. And I would uh, concatenate all of these kind of functional C-sharp-like queries in Python. I would check it into the repo. And now I'm checking in code, which looks nothing like any other Python code. And some people might use the iter tools. Some people right. might use list comprehensions and so on. So you can see that what we're doing here is, is we're creating very, very different types of Python code. Is, is that a good thing? Oh, yeah. As long as the team is productive and you have made good choices, it's a good thing. Most of the time, other people read your code. So if it's a good thing from an organizational perspective, it will always be whether the software is maintainable over 10 years, you know, imagine. So not only for you, but for the others, then it's good. The question, I think, is the programming language the correct place to build in opinions on on how to write software, right? Because it, it is easy if I have to choose between a framework being over-opinionated, such that it stifles me in a lot of things I want to do, and I have to almost often in, in like frameworks, I used to have this with, you know, Keras back in the day, it's like, okay, super easy to train a CNN, but now I want to like access to this gradient and do whatever with it. And it, that's becomes hard. It's become easier. But so if I have to choose between over and under opinionated, I'm always going to choose under opinionated. And I feel in, in a thing that is as general as a programming language, if it's not for a very niche audience, I, I feel the to, to give the option to do whatever you want and then maybe within a company you can say okay people we're just not going to use either tools maybe that's the better approach than the other way around where, where the language itself is so opinionated that it doesn't let you do things more productively there's three things in a company when you look at the strategy of software engineering there's technology there's process and there's people. So we want to develop people that are highly capable in, in software engineering. We want to develop some process which gives us consistent ways of working. So it might be we only use PyTorch or we do this type of testing or we have to use CICD and, and all of this stuff. And what we're doing is we're conformalizing because it gives us more predictability, it reduces technical debt and so on. Now, I don't know how, don't know how it works at Microsoft anymore, but do you do this at the project level? Do, as a tech lead, do you say, okay, guys, you're going to use PyTorch. You're, you're not going to do this. You're going to do that. Because you can't possibly do this at the company level because most companies are like a conglomeration of different business units and it's siloed and you couldn't possibly get everyone to work the same way. Right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I'll keep it my personal. So when we start a project, it's always what is the customer using? And we try to use as much of fair because it's difficult to convince somebody to change it in the short period of time we work with them. Otherwise, we have a working agreement. And yes, uh, things like these do go into uh, what are we going to do? People, what kind of linting standard are we going to You'll be surprised how many people have a problem with what linting standard you're going to use. It's completely <laughs> stupid, but well, it's true. <laughs> so you have to agree to that. You have to make sure that you uh, have a, work, a working agreement that this is what we're going to do and this is what we're not going to do. And of course, then there is a strong PR process to get stuff in. And if uh, and if somebody makes something which is not following the working agreement, you make changes. But uh, yeah, in Microsoft level, I don't think it exists. In other companies which I have worked, and we had like thousands of distributed services running, every team, as you can imagine, working on their own technology stack and just abstracted away from the API. So how, how, how Bezos said that teams can't talk to each other. Uh, what I mean, what he meant was like, you cannot exchange private information among the teams. You're only behind the API. And behind the API, some people were doing Go, some people were writing things in like Haskell, some whatever, uh, we don't even know. It was all API abstracted and how they managed their own system was their own problem, but they were the ones who had to maintain the 
uptime of their API. So they were on call for that. I wanted to come back to something Yannick was talking about. And I think we got two lines of, of inquiry here. And, and Yannick really hit it on the head. Is the programming language the, the correct place to constrain what people are working on? And the problem with doing it at the programming language is it's bloody hard to predict the future and the future needs. And if you bake into your programming language, for example, we shall not allow operator overloading. Like you may find out at some point in the future, like that was a bad idea. So I remember, again, I, I started off as a C programmer, Fortran, went to C plus, and at some point in the mid nineties or whenever, I decided to give Java a try because it could run in a browser and everybody loved it and it was the next great thing and whatever. So I learned it and I started trying to write scientific code in Java. And boy, oh boy, did I feel like I was wearing a straight jacket because suppose you're writing a linear algebra equation or something. And plus, if you had operators overloaded nicely, let's say a Runge-Kutta algorithm looks exactly the same for one dimension as it does for multi-dimensions because you just overload multiplication times, et cetera, and the natural ways to be matrix multiplication and addition. In a Java library, it would be something like X dot multiply parentheses Y, and you could never know if it was lowercase M or capital M, or maybe it was molt for this library and multiply for that one. It was just this mess, right? Because they had this religious you know, prohibition against operator overloading. And you fast forward years and years, and now Java, I think, I'm pretty sure it's added operator overloading to some extent. They've added in the equivalent of templates, i.e. like type parameterization, which they were against in the beginning. They didn't, they don't, they didn't. I thought it's, they did. it's diff. Oh, maybe this is really new, but they had this thing called, what was it called? It was called different, and yeah. it was just at the compiler level. So oh, okay. what it would do is you could define a template variable, which at the compile time while you're developing would act as the type, like you could make a list okay. of vectors, but then the bytecode would still say object, gotcha, which, gotcha. which is why in Java you can never, or you couldn't at the time I was doing it, you could never do new T. If T was your t template variable, you could never do that. And that just, if you have to write like meta programming, that's the crappiest thing ever because you always do if object and then mm. if float Nasty. if byte if int if long if character. Ah, okay <laughs> right. yeah that's no good so my point is you can't predict the future so try like straustrup said focus on making the right thing easy to do and build libraries if you want people to do some particular form of coding build a library that supports sure. that activity and the other thing that this opens up is it allows Darwinian evolution to take place and for people to have the flexibility to develop new things. I get it. There are there are trade-offs, right? I, I always say there's no silver bullets. You know, things are going to come at a cost. It's, I think it was Socrates that said, nothing vast enters the human experience without a curse. So I get it. There are costs to this, but I think the benefits outweigh that when we make languages that are more general and flexible and multi-paradigm so it's so you can always write a dsl so that's your language yeah. is expressive you can always write sure, a nice sure. dsl on top of it and let people which use was the DSL. cool thing about lisp yeah that exactly. was the cool thing about lisp exactly. that you brought up earlier yeah right so i think i wanted to come to in general the question of software engineering and its intersection with machine learning because i am a total noob beyond research i write research code and the goal there is just to get my final plot like whatever i have to do to make that is i i have 
five versions of my IPython notebook and my scripts and so on. I just don't care. And all I need to do is get that plot and maybe modify that a bit. What is your, all of yours maybe experiences with machine learning, like what's important? It seems, is the language an important thing or is the, the process an important thing? Is the infrastructure an important thing? Because, yeah, I don't know. What does it, let's say someone has a machine learning idea for a product. What is something that they should pay attention to when pulling up that product and, and deploying it and delivering it? Great question, Sachin. <laughs> I, I could talk forever on this, so please. Yeah, right, exactly. So you know, having worked or shipped many different machine learning products out there, so it's there is a discrete. There are two discrete areas. One is the discovery, where you are making the model. It looks completely different from once the model has been developed. Mm-hmm. So the there is almost no software engineering when you are doing the research portion of it. And people are doing all kinds of stuff and trying different things out. But as soon as the model is done, and there might be very different iterations when the model is improved, but that's part of software engineering. And then I think most of the time, like way more time goes into the deployment or getting this stuff out than it does for the research portion of it. And that's my own experience that there is a small team which is doing a lot of research and they are trying all kind of IPython notebooks and whatnot. At some point they say, okay, we have a notebook published, we have a model published, and now we need to get it out. And that takes a long time. That takes a really long time to get the stuff in. And that's a lot of software engineering portion of it. So what is like the the most, what do you feel people may not realize where the biggest time sinks in this process? First of all, Writing a good inference architecture, like uh, you have a model, it's going to use the machines to run the inference, like the model is done. Mm -hmm. So you have to write all of these front-end servers which are going to accept your API, then there'll be API gateway on top of it, there'll be some database which is storing the result, you'll have to send all the logs in. Like machine learning portion model is a really small portion because it's all developed. And it takes a long time between the model being developed and actually being used by the people. And then when you fit in the retrain portion of it, okay, we're going to collect the data in actual usage. We'll come back and try to improve the model over time. That adds more complexity and don't realize how much time. I think it takes five times or four times more work to get this thing running than it is to develop the initial model. It's not true. Maybe the initial model comes from some other research area and there are lots of overlapping researches. So I'm not counting that time. You're working in a particular aspect, but I'm not counting like the research with went into ResNet because we are starting from ResNet. Yeah. I mean, forget about that. We are starting from some problem, but perhaps to solve that problem and to get that into deployment takes very different timelines. I've, I've got a, a couple of thoughts about this. I think machine learning is uniquely problematic. Even software engineering is really hard because a lot of software, software engineering is, problematic. Yeah. oh, that's a separate discussion, but because clearly a lot of software engineering is about orchestrating the non-interactive phase of deployments. But I've also noticed that when people work in the tech industry, they are unaware of how multidisciplinary most software engineers are. Because the bigger, even earlier when we were talking about people, process and, and tech, people from the tech industry tend to be very good. And these are folks that can be writing the code and they can also be productionizing it and maintaining it and looking at it. Culturally, I I see quite a few different axes 
Now, the first thing with machine learning projects is they've got one foot in the analytical world and one foot in the operational world. So you need to know all about um, the modern data warehouse and how to build data engineering pipelines and so on. You need to know all about machine learning itself interactively as a data scientist. And then there's a complete cultural dichotomy between uh, data science and software engineers. And I used to think that we should try and homogenize that, you know, those two things together. But we can't because if you're a hardcore data scientist, you care about ablation studies and writing papers and so on and we can try as much as possible to make you a software engineer but it's just not going to happen you know, you're just right. and the other cultural uh, dichotomy is between data scientist folks and security and governance type thinking because quite often these folks are not thinking about unintended consequences of their models and That's how true. the models get validated in an, in an engineering context is completely different to a data science context and how these things get governed in production so the tldr here is that in this life cycle, there are so many different folks involved in the process, and you need to manage those handshakes very carefully. Let me jump in and say that so Forbes had a survey, uh, I don't, a couple of years back, of <clears throat> data scientists and data science and whatnot, and it said something like 80% of the week of the work was going into data engineered engineering, mm -hmm. data cleansing, connecting, integration, whatever. And this is really disappointing to to this generation of data scientists that came out of school and thought they were just going to sit down and get plugged into some great clean data and deliver fantastic insights and everybody's going to be wow this look at these insights so i think what you have to just look out for is that the engineering the cleansing aspects all the stuff that wraps around the brain almost like in the human body actually all of, most of our mass is not our brain it's all the stuff around our brain that that makes us uh integral part of the environment and the sensory apparatus and all that kind of thing that's where you're going to spend a lot of work unless the team is structured such that you're paired up with data engineers and software engineers and the workloads are divided in that way i will also just mention one other thing there yannick which is this is just a small thing that i've seen bite so many data scientists when they were doing the research phase of things is make sure you understand look ahead bias because it comes up in all kinds of weird ways so if you sample if you divide up your data set in the wrong way you're going to get look ahead bias if you're not careful about an index and you've got a plus one error you're going to get look ahead bias and i can't tell you so many times we've seen we found some awesome model this is going to just <laughs> crush everything or make us millions of dollars and, and then actually some further down the road we find out oh damn there was a look ahead bias <laughs> back to square one it's crazy and and what do you feel with respect to let's say end users of systems like this because the engineering is a whole one side of it and okay a lot of time goes into engineering and deploying, but then it's also a matter of how does it actually benefit a, a, an end user and how do end users, because we as we as researchers, we often feel like, whoa, I'm like 2% better. My model is like 2% better. I have new state of the art. I've won the gold medal. I get to publish a paper, but then it seems like a lot of times to the end users, they don't care if it's 2% better. It's so what in your experience, what's kind of the, what's let's say you have a traditional system that's based on just a couple of regexes or whatnot and then you're trying to replace it with a machine learned system that does the same but supposedly better do you find users what's the biggest annoyance is it i can imagine users being like if it screws up once where the old system didn't they're like whoa it screws up or is it i don't know what's your experience with end user 
acceptance of machine learned systems? I'll tell you like a, a, an axiom for product development. If it's 2% better, there's no point doing it. If it's 20% yeah. better, it's no point doing it. It should be 2x better to launch mm -hmm. a new product. There is just absolutely no, uh, it's so expensive to launch a product that if it's not 2x better, the machine learning is not 2x better than regex. Now, at least I wouldn't spend my time and people just don't get the benefit of it. So that's what I'm saying. But you're absolutely right. I read this article somewhere on Medium or something, written by this person and says she was complaining that the academia is, other publishing of papers is so like different from solving real world problems yes. that she tried to submit a paper to uh, neuro IPS and, and she gets rejected and she's tried to submit a paper to like many different ones which is more practical and like solves an applied problem but uh, she gets rejected because it's like oh it's for a very specific use case and it's not general and it's just something like that some, some reason and it goes into that a researcher is quite happy because they have in abstract gotten better two percent better results but uh, an applied paper doesn't get through. So I, I see that there's a huge amount of difference, but for the end user, if it's not 2x better to some new problem, which is in an applied space, it doesn't make any difference. So mm -hmm. it's like quite separate, the academia world and the actual real world of shipping products. I completely agree with that sentiment because uh, so for eight years or so, I was uh, I defected to the dark side and I was an evil Wall Street quant and high frequency trader and, and things like that. And we're constantly consuming white papers about anything, you know, st stat arb, whatever we can find. And in the ivory tower, like many algorithms are fantastic trading algorithms or any other kind of algorithm, right? Because they just ignore so many of the, the basic realities of systems like transaction costs, adversarial effects, market impact, et cetera. It's just all kind of, let's just all ignore all this inconvenient <laughs> stuff and create this beautiful theory. And then as that collides with reality, it just shatters. And so there is right. this big disconnect between what practitioners face and the knowledge that's being developed in academia that could actually help those practitioners. I'd quite like to call out as well that one of the issues we have is this kind of myopic conception of statistical and machine learning models clearly we are too focused on accuracy there's a real issue around metric selection in general and again because yep. we're in this multidisciplinary team data scientists quite often don't really know what metrics to use and so many of these models the whole reason not to use machine learning is it produces so much technical debt in production right it's basically a black box and we are instructing the machine through examples rather than explicit instructions and these these models they, they learn shortcuts they overfit they're biased and this myopic obsession with accuracy is antithetical to what we need to be doing we need to be yep. um, trying to introspect how these models behave but we also need to accept that there's a limit to that introspection and even the methods of introspection are highly problematic because mm. basically as we said the other day we're just using mathematics to reason about mathematics and we're not really getting anywhere and most of these introspection techniques can't be done non-interactively in an engineering context so it, it, again how do we draw all of this together can i frame that as a can i frame that as a question actually and i'm just going to frame this as a question uh is that you get the confusion matrix. And what I've tried to do in business development with machine learning is really focus with the customer on how do we take that confusion matrix and map it to a KPI, like a business KPI? What's your ROI going to be based on this? And you'll find that some of those quadrants in that confusion matrix may have much more of an impact. Like if it's a predictive maintenance scenario, you don't want 
false positives because then you send out crews to do repairs that were unnecessary. Or maybe in a different context of a highly important, valuable machine, you do actually, you'd prefer not to have false negatives because if, if a turbine overspeeds, it may destroy an entire section of the factory. So yeah, go ahead, Yannick. Sorry, could I just quickly interject that? Because we were saying yesterday that there's Kenneth Stanley's conception that objectives are a tyranny and that if you do have key performance indicators, there's this notion that to get from where we are now to where we want to go, we should have a monotonically increasing metric between the two places. And actually, you need to get worse before you go better. And it creates this kind of groupthink or convergent behavior in systems, which is almost antithetical to, to what we want. But the counter argument, and I find myself saying this at work, I'm like a parrot, I just say this, oh, we need to be, we need to be objective driven, we need to be an observable organization, we need to have data scientists following key performance indicators and we need to be following this through the life cycle of the project. If you say it enough times, you almost believe it. There's a bit of there is a bit of an, a circular reasoning in these papers that are like, let's do away with objective, but at the end we'll get better in that objective because they, they justify throwing away the objective by the fact that at the end they're better at the objective. So what they're they're actually saying is just that the the, the linear path might not be the best one but you still you like clearly you can't explore purely in all directions and and improve on every possible objective it's just like the, the, at some point that cuts into the no free lunch theorem mm -hmm. and then yeah i, I agree you, you should sit with the customer but with respect to for example explainability like next time your windows computer hang crashes like good luck calling microsoft and be like <laughs> why did this happen <laughs> they're gonna be like Ugh. What, what do I like? It's update, not like update traditional, your version. It's not <laughs> traditional programs are necessarily explainable. ML is is a good thing, but it's it's not the, the one above above all. So, yeah, I would, if you know, with respect to this two x better and so on, we we see machine learning coming into pretty much every single field now. All the people are trying to apply machine learning to all the fields and so on, but not everywhere are big improvements to be had. So where do you see in the, let's say in the near or midterm future, where do you see the biggest impacts on machine learning on actual practical end users? Like I've often said something like GPT-3 or eventually GPT-4 will be like a giant breakthrough that changes a lot of industries, but I'm not sure. So where do you see, where do you see, maybe you're closer to end users? I don't know, this is my personal interest, but where I would like to see is machine learning applied to robotics. So mm. right now, lots of robotics is still standard mechanical, like closed loop dynamical systems. And there has been a lot of promise around, oh, reinforcement learning is going to solve, or we can apply reinforcement learning to robotics. And there's a lot of stuff on simulation, but probably it's be conveniently ignore all the real world effects of moving something in the physical world and they, they, they don't really apply or there has not been great advances not i mean maybe i don't know of them but I, that's what i would like to see like a reinforcement learning or the promise of reinforcement learning applied to robotics i, I think that can make a substantial improvement to humankind if we could get good robots in because right now robotics is quite primitive now, it could have substantial impact, like GPT-3, for example, or, or something better than that can have a substantial impact 
on human life. You know, we, we can make better chatbots. I don't know, whatever, making some fake things there. But I think if we could apply the promise, what has been promised for reinforcement learning in robotics, I'd be so happy. Is there a fundamental kind of like disconnect between maybe the bit world and the real world and the fact that machine learning operates with you know lots of data, fails lots of times during learning and so on, and maybe we just can't afford this in the in the like quote unquote real world of of actual physical robots and do you think that has anything to do with it or is it just that the problem is harder yeah i think it could be like a I mean, uh, lot of reinforcement learning is happening in the simulation and you require mm. quite detailed model to be brought into the simulator to do it and then you have to ignore things like gear slipping or the actual friction coefficient of the motor you're using it's, it, I think it's a hard problem, but it has been promised for a long time that it should work. <laughs> uh, and I think lots of people are working on it, to be honest. Uh, and I just wish that one day we would be able to get to that. So uh, and there's this company in, in Cambridge in the UK just doing autonomous cars and they're using end-to-end -end reinforcement learning to teach it. I think they are like, okay, we're going to show the whole sequence of it and the car should eventually learn how to drive it, something like that. I think if they could make it work, that would be quite interesting, uh, use of machine learning for real practical usage. And let me tell you two areas, Yannick, where, where I am seeing high value from machine learning. And, uh, and as much as I bash CNNs and say that they don't work well in a theoretical kind of sense, they work well enough for a couple areas, uh, and they're both remote monitoring. So it's basically using either vision or sound to do non-invasive remote monitoring of all kinds of things. So some examples, using drones to fly them over agricultural fields to collect images that you then use machine learning to allow the high density but low depth image telemetry to be linked to high density, or sorry, uh, low density, high depth telemetry. So say, for example, sensors that you can deploy every square mile or something like that to then interpolate that high dense or high depth data to a higher density, right? So mm -hmm. finding pest infestations in a field or acidity conditions that need to be mitigated with Lyme or something like that. So in other words, visual ability to scale monitoring of, of systems much more efficiently. Another example is deploying microphones to listen to say a factory floor and being able to hear things that are going wrong because humans in that environment have to wear ear protection and whatnot. But if any one of their experts take their ear protection off, they can just notice by sound that something is grinding or making a weird noise over here. And this is the ability to augment existing technologies non-invasively with, with telemetry gathering systems. They're even very scalable and efficient like drones or hot air balloons with a camera or whatever uh, to just vastly extend our ability to monitor and detect so that we can go and mitigate. That's an interesting. If you wouldn't mind, could I, I'll just come back to, uh, to Sachin's example about the, the robotics as well. That seems like the direction that we should be going in. And at the moment, most self-driving cars are using traditional control mod modules. They might be using ordinary differential equations or something. I, I, you'd know far more about this than me, but at the moment, 
the the perception models use uh, deep learning and one of the real challenges i think with reinforcement learning is probably first of all the sample efficiency problem and uh, which i think can be solved to some extent with model based reinforcement learning but the the second problem of course is that they just don't generalize very well so essentially they're memorization machines and you couldn't possibly train it in every possible situation and and then probably the third problem is that these these machines are black boxes and in a very sort of highly sensitive scenario as in lives are at risk we really need to understand their behavior so do those three things preclude reinforcement learning from being appropriate for self-driving cars oh, i don't know it should not be so uh, you yourself said that each of those problems can itself be solved like at least the theory of reinforcement learning does say that with function approximation it is generalizable and it's both generalizable and discriminant there is nothing preventing it from underlying theory to say that it is not possible it's just that we probably haven't reached that state but you're absolutely right it's not sample efficient there are many different problems or real world things are not possible to bring into simulation i don't know i'm, I'm not doing research in reinforcement learning so i don't have a very great idea of absolute recent cutting edge what's happening but i can it's all, all crap it's all smoke and mirrors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, so sorry. I'm just hoping that maybe someday, at least theoretically, it sounds all possible. So we'll be able to get there. But I, it's my hope. I'm yeah. not sure whether it can be done or not. As far as I know, theory it doesn't look like it should not be possible. It's yeah, and it's still with again with this like theoretical guarantees or explainability, understandability. So if you have two two systems for to to operate like fix your I don't know operate on your liver or something would you or your self driving car would you choose the system that you can fully understand but or the system that you can't understand but makes only 10% of the mistakes say say you could look at all the statistics of the last 10 years and you could accurately assess this system makes 10 accidents every million kilometers the system I don't understand, but it only makes one accident every so and so. I, I'm not sure anyone would choose the 10 accidents just because they can they can like lay there in their accident, be like, well, this is clearly because the brakes failed. Like <laughs> it's <laughs> it seems I'm not sure, but but the, the thing is, though, if you took the policy for a self-driving car and, and as Chalet said the other week, if, if you deploy it in Japan, it won't work. Whereas if you drive a car in Japan, it will work. So it might appear that it's not made any mistakes, but that's only because in this domain where we have quite controlled statistical, we've got a controlled environment, it hasn't yet seen anything that it, it didn't encounter during training. I agree, but yeah, it's a bit of a different situation than what, what I proposed. I, I was just trying to, yeah, saying this, that this understandability might be a bit overrated. At some point. No, I'm, I'm not I'm, saying that, yeah. that 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 it's it's worthless. It's just that it's it's not the end all, end all of of things. I feel what is relevant to the end user is going to be: is this going to fulfill my my wishes and my goals, and is going to help me? And let's be honest: people don't understand their technology right now. Like they have mm. no idea That's how true. their phone work. Not even us have any idea how our phones work. I like. <laughs> Just on, on that, I, I agree with you. So there, there's three things, sample efficiency, generalization and understandability. The understandability one, I'm completely on, on the same page as you. I don't think we should understand all technology. We, we should know, test it. 
tested. Yeah. But. <laughs> somewhere, I think somewhere in here is an interesting analogy. So airplanes, right? People have this kind of fear of, of flying in airplanes, or I think it's generally accepted that, at least in the U.S., let's say, on average, a person is probably more afraid of flying than they are driving their car, even though they're much more likely to be harmed or killed driving their car per mile. And I think some of that is attributed to the lack of control, right? If I'm driving a car, I feel like I'm in some sense autonomous. I have control, whereas I'm putting my life in the hands of a pilot who I don't know. I've only seen them through a little narrow door or something like that and and very complex systems. And and when they fail, it's over. It's catastrophic, right? There's almost zero chance of kind of survival. And there's a connection here between that and technology that I can understand. And therefore, I can, in my mind, simulate another agent like myself in that situation. And I can feel comfortable with the choices they're going to make and whatnot versus this machine that I'm not sure who it is, what it is, what it's doing. Uh, And so there's a connection there. And the other thing I'm wondering is what work has been done on the evolutionary basis of this this intuition that people have, right? Or this feeling, because it may not be without without value. If you think about, suppose you have a, a population of individuals and they're very apt to just put their trust in, in one entity to provide the solution for them. And they don't really, they don't care if they understand it and they don't apply their own evaluation or thought process to it. I think it's very easy for a single entity to go haywire and lead the entire population off the cliff. So we probably have built in this innate desire to understand and reevaluate and reassess on our own as agents to provide some kind of mitigation for this tail risk of everyone following something that goes terribly wrong. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> yeah, I've... I would choose the one that had 10% less. Uh, I don't actually, I know enough about machines and whatever to, <laughs> if it's 10%, if it's one-tenth as many surgical items left in my gut or something like that, I'm, I'm definitely going to take the, the one that performs better statistically. <laughs> And I was saying, I have a simple heuristics. I don't understand humans very well or fully. I mean, <laughs> it's the same with the machine. So what? I mean, I'm still living and taking decisions all the time. So what's the right. difference? Yeah, yeah that's, we, we need to keep in mind the alternatives. Like with the algo shambles, what was the alternative? That we right. just let some people in a closed room who we don't know and we have no idea what they're up to make the decision? If, if the alternative to a self-driving car is like a brand new uh, driver that has a poor record, which I don't, you know, so we have to keep in mind, there's, there's no free lunch. There's no silver bullets. What's the alternative and, and do a rational comparison of the two. This might be quite a good segue actually, because Sachin was just saying, uh, about the dichotomy between understanding machines and understanding people in meat space. Uh, <laughs> you wrote a couple of articles actually, and one was called how to be an exceptional software engineer. And the second one was how to be an exceptional tech lead. So why don't you give us the elevator pitch? Uh, for how to be an exceptional software engineer. Well, there, there, is, that, is that what you're saying, Tim? Just to make sure. You can choose. You, you can do Either the tech one. lead yeah. one if you well, I, I wrote an article just to make sure that it's like summarizing what I learned. And a lot of, I work with a lot of junior people who come into Microsoft just to make them understand what does it take to become a good software engineer? There are a few things, like one of the first things which I said is learn a functional language. Most of us come from an object oriented and we take it in school and then we keep learning just doing that, especially in Microsoft, we do most of the time C sharp. 
just by doing another functional language will open your eyes to new ways of thinking, and then it will make you a better C-sharp programmer, which is uh, in your, uh, you know, in your birthday, and so on. I think it summarizes what I think I have learned. I write these kind of articles because you never know the next day you're not alive. So you must always capture what you have learned till now in some place for posterity, somebody might find useful. So that's why I tend to write these summary articles. Maybe when I, uh, next year I turn 40. So when I turn 40, I have these 40 lessons in 40 years. Like, just, what if I never see 41? So I'm like, I, I've listed what I think was good for my life and what I have learned. So somebody, maybe somebody would find it useful. So that, that's the main reason I, I, I put my thoughts in there. So you have to, you're externalizing your intelligence, right? Is that right? Exactly. Just externalized <laughs> intelligence? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's like uh, from Epicurean or Stoic philosophy, like finitude, you should not be afraid of your ending of your, do not be afraid of your ending of your life. You just have to prepare for it. So it's like you're ready for your finitude. You don't have to be afraid of it. It's a very Epicurean way of writing the article just for posterity. Be prepared that you might not be here next year. I don't want to sound morose, but it's just one of the philosophies there. <laughs> yeah, every day, every day I'm tweaking my headstone. I'm almost, <laughs> I've almost chosen the perfect wording for it. Anyway, put up a straw pole now. <laughs> right. I'd be quite interested in also in the tech tech lead, what you've learned in that respect, because coming from engineering and so on, I think a lot less people have sort of an insight what it means to be to be a, a tech lead. And also the most tech leads, I think, were themselves just engineers below reporting to a tech lead at some point and not necessarily prepared for that. So what is do you have any anything that Again, do you have anything that most people don't expect when right. they first become a tech lead that you maybe in your experience was like, what? I need to do this. <laughs> right. It's, it's a very good point. In fact, I would say that you're right. Since most, it's, it's very likely that you become a tech lead because you were quite a good engineer and you can see the architecture, you can see things happening and things like those. And since in an individual contributor role, you're expected to contribute individually, it's very easy for a tech lead to get stuck into solving detailed problems. And I, in my article, I start with the thing saying, if there was only one thing you need to learn, it's like the tech lead needs, you need to get everything done, but you don't have to do everything. I think mm -hmm. this is the main place where as a tech lead, you're ultimately responsible, yes. Uh, but a lot of people get caught by thinking that they also need to do that stuff. So there is a lot of stuff to yep. do. You have to make sure you have to get it done, but you don't have to do it. I think mm -hmm. this is the main difference between a good tech lead and a tech lead which gets stuck into small, narrow places. And I say that, oh, okay, if you're an engineer who wants to come in the morning, look at the screen facing the wall and solve a complex technical problem, don't be a tech lead. You're not the right person for a tech lead. You know, don't do it. Uh, you have to be the person who's going to see and how to help other people and make sure the things are aligned. So it's a very different role and it's unexpected for good, strong individual contributors to become an effective tech leader. And that's the reason I wrote that article. That was my next question, actually, because I know at Microsoft they have this conception that even as an independent contributor, you can go all the way. And I think there That's are true. a couple of examples of right. level 69 ICs, but it's incredibly rare. Right. And so if, if you are building out competencies for the career progression of a software engineer, clearly at some point 
it it becomes less about software engineering and more about force multipliers and being able to uh, yeah. work effectively with others. Right. So, so do you think being um, a senior person in a software engineering organization almost mandates that it's more about people skills than software skills? There is no denying the fact that people skills, every problem turned out to be a person or a people problem. Even software problem turns out to be a person or a people problem, like something is wrong with the interaction. So I do think it's very important. Having said that, tech lead, at least in Microsoft, is a role. And it's, not a, it's not a title. It's not a position. So you can be a tech lead for one project because it gives you good experience and you are capable of looking at the whole architecture for this particular case. But in the next one, you can just jump in and spend time in a technical uh, capacity. It, it, it does differ. It does differ from team to team. So some teams which are highly customer facing, uh, yes, a person or your personal skills and how to do that is considered more important. But if you're in some product group, I think technical skills can take you quite far. With respect to, to alignment, I, I find this to be a very interesting topic. Let's say, even, let's say you have one team or even if maybe you're a lead for a couple of teams together, how do you align that? What did you find? How do you make people work in one direction? I, I know a lot of companies have like incentive structure with promotions and so on, and others maybe try to do it via personal connection and motivation and Others are just authoritarian. Did you find any like best recipe for making people work on the same thing that everyone joins in with their full force? That's again a very good question. I think there are multiple ways to solve it. My personal is to have, I follow, I'm in Microsoft, but I follow what Google does is like OKR. So we have, I try to set some objectives and then we make some key result. And those objectives and key results are open from one team to the other. So team one, team two, and team three know each other's objectives and they reflect the objectives of the next layer. So then it's easy. It's not only a matter of uh, doing your objectives, it's to make sure that your objectives match up the next layer and then you have key results to make sure you uh, attain your objectives. Now, different people, as I say, have different way of doing it. I find it like transparency opens up or removes a lot of problems. Like if you know what the other team is driving towards, then it's mm. just easy to align with that team. Uh, unfortunately, lots of teams just keep their objectives to themselves and never share it with others. So I think that's where the alignment goes out of disalignment. And then you need some person to make this alignment happen. I feel like if the teams are very transparent, then they are aligned. Could I gently challenge on that? There used to be this kind of objective obsession, even in the software engineering industry. I think there was a guy in the early 80s who kicked all of this off. And there was this notion that we should be measuring software engineers by the number of lines of code that they check in or tests passing and so on. And clearly that was, it created a kind of perverse incentive and everyone gamified the system. And it was, the result was almost antithetical to better software engineering, particularly on, on large ambitious software projects with a lot of folks in there. And now right. the entire industry has in, in some sense moved away from it but now the objectives are more in a meta process sense so mm. in, in terms of how we do our agile uh, project management methodology and so on so right. so where, where do you draw the line there so i'll tell you effective activity metrics do not work but effectiveness metrics do work like you were saying so activity metrics is like you make a to-do list in the morning and lots of this filled with small stuff which is just to do some activity they are not really uh, providing an end benefit so if you're setting a metric, it must reflect the, the end thing you're trying to achieve rather than the activity. What I mean to say is like this, 
100 lines of code is almost of no significance, but shipping a feature is. So instead of measuring how many uh, lines of code you're submitting, you can certainly, the team can start to measure its overall end user feature submitted. Of course, it, it, you can still challenge that. Say, okay, what about features if they're not valuable? Yes, they're all true, but you can take this argument n plus one till the end and try to make every layer, which is not an activity metric, but an effectiveness metric. So it's not efficient, but effective. No, mm -hmm. That's the way so, to look at it. So one is anyone who's interested in a career in software engineering, go buy the mythical man month by Fred Brooks, that's which was nice. written in 1975 immediately and read it. So this will educate you on some very key concepts about what's special about the software engineering, you know, world. I did just want to comment on a couple. So, so I, I sorry, Keith, yeah. you can't just say that and not give us the elevator pitch. <laughs> so the man, there's so many elevator pitches in that one. So first of all, he he talks a lot about no silver bullets and to try and drill this in, and he gives a lot of examples of that. He talks about how the idea, the main difference between software, okay, and and almost every other, probably every other kind of human endeavor, is that you can't force progress by parallelizing the development. So suppose I want to dig a ditch that's 100 miles long, okay, and it's going to take one guy 100 years or, or something to dig that. I can go hire 100 people and get it done in, in one year because they can just work independently on their little section of ditch. And the world is quite analog in the sense that if the ditches don't quite line up like they're 20 feet apart, we, we can dig some more dirt and correct that problem quite easily. Software is not like that. It's very fragile. You can't, like, if you're building an airplane and you're not sure if this bolt needs to be uh, two millimeters thick, if that's enough, we'll just make it two and a half and, and you'll be okay. You can't do that with for loop. It's, I'm not sure what the limit is on this thing. Maybe let me just add or subtract a little bit to it and it should work right. That's not how software works. And the debugging process is very linear. It's like you have to figure out one problem and then move on to the next problem that appears. You can't in parallel kind of work on all the things that are going wrong with this particular bug. It just doesn't work like that. Because of this fragility and linear nature of debugging, if you just add more and more people to a project, it actually doesn't accelerate the development of that software progress and a project. And it can actually impede it because now you have this sort of N squared communication problem that has to go on where all the people working have to be aware of some subset of other people. Yeah. Quick interjection. This is similar to what Cholet said about scientific research. Of course it is. It, it's increasing exponentially, but the actual value is quite linear. Yeah, yeah. So that's very related uh, kind of problem because scientific progress is often linear as well, right? It's like somebody figures out something new and then that's added to, but there are other problems in science as well. There are a lot of, if you read, uh, was it Kuhn's work on the theory of scientific revolution and whatnot that ultimately makes the same comment that science advances by one funeral at a time. So there's a lot of sociological kind of problems in science. But anyway, Mythical Man Month, absolute awesome read. I do want to just point out a couple things that I learned, Yannick, managing software teams in the past. So number one is you need to have clear written specifications. So it's not good enough to just verbally ask somebody to go do something. You need to really have that in writing, sent over in an email, like here's the, the specifications for, for what needs to be done on this piece. So that there's a, a concrete 
measure of whether or not we've done this correctly. And if they come back and haven't done all of that, it, you have to delegate back to them to go back again and continue the work until the, the specification is met. So just tying in with what Sachin said earlier is that delegation was the hardest thing for me to learn. And I, I liked engineering. I like solving problems. I love helping people. And so my innate tendency is to go and try and solve a problem for somebody. But when you're running a team, you've got to build up their capabilities to develop and solve the problems. And it's hard. It's hard to turn over a critical step in a project and not to stress out about whether or not it's going to get completed. And so you've got to learn to delegate. And the best advice I ever had on that was a manager. I said, I don't know how to do this. Like, how do I delegate? And he goes, okay, just think about what you would do today and then figure out who else could do some of those pieces instead of you and then write up the specification and delegate to them. And then the important thing that keeps that process moving along uh, smoothly is regular communication. You need to have at least a daily check-in on how are things going. And it's not because you're trying to micromanage them and engage their progress. It's more just, can I help you? Is there some blocker you've run into that maybe because of some experience I've had, I can help you with? Or maybe I know someone else within the organization that can help us solve that problem. And that does have the side effect of kind of, in a good way, keeping people a bit on their toes because now they're motivated to make progress because they know that their peers are going to be reviewing this progress. So it's just kind of a friendly motivation. Yeah, go ahead. D data scientists would hate that because they would say you're truncating their creativity. And we, we, we talked about yeah. a divergent search and they should be treasure hunting and, and discovering yeah. new things. And that's antithetical to, well, I want you to check yeah. in with me every day and tell me what you're working on. I'm going to tell you the secret. The reason why, and I've hated that in the past too, the reason why people hate that is that we're not sure we're doing the right thing. We're not sure we're doing, everybody thinks their code sucks. Just get over it. I My code does suck. If you come and tell me, dude, this code you wrote sucks. I'm gonna say, I get it. I'm sorry, like I, I didn't put enough time into that. Here, let's try to make it better. So they're worried that one of their peers is gonna look at their neural network or how they tweaked ResNet or something and be like, what are you, some kind of idiot? Why did you put this dropout layer in there? And and look, you've compressed this dimension down by a factor of two. That's dumb. Like we're all worried that somebody's going to have some negative feedback. We're all in the same boat, okay? We're all, just get over that, accept this kind of communication. It'll keep you on your toes in a good way and keep driving you towards forward progress. Anyway, I've actually written up a lot of this back in 2009 and some post in a, old Usenet forum. I'll dredge up the link and, and send it to you in case it's helpful. And I apologize, gentlemen, I have a hard stop right now. So I'm actually going to have to to drop off the call, but it's been a pleasure, honestly. Thank, Thank you. you. It's great. Cheers, Keith. Bye-bye. Okay, Sachin, final thoughts. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Great discussion. Started with programming languages, if nothing else, <laughs> and going on to many different things. I have to say, Yannick, why do you have a green screen at the back? Oh, I, yeah, that's just where I keep it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought putting green screen behind you on the internet is considered like a, whoa, a dangerous thing to do because somebody can now extract it and put you somewhere else where you don't yes. want to be. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's the, that's the goal. Just, okay. Yeah, I, I was curious. Are you calling for baiting? It's like a bait video. <laughs> it's, All right, but thank you. Uh, it was nice to talk to you guys. Uh, now that you've said that, Sachin, uh, that you've just you've inspired me to make one of those videos.
so uh-huh. you, you okay. can expect it to be superimposed on on, on the start great. of this um, <laughs> anyway uh, Sachin it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for joining us and I, I really appreciate it yeah it's the, the just for me to get to pick the brains of people actually working in the field is, is just incredibly valuable and I think for a lot of people to hear from you yeah thanks great. I'm glad uh, we could do this thank you thank Amazing. you so much take take care guys cheers bye bye, bye.